Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. Luke 2, 10 and 11. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be with the church, isn't it? You know? Kick it with your people and and just enjoy being in the community that we're able to build here. I love watching you guys catch up. I say this all the time, but I, I love, um, you know, 30 minutes after service, there are still people running conversations in here and catching up every week. And man, if that's not a healthy sign just of how loved the people are here, I don't know what is. That's so good. That's so good. Uh, my name is Mark. I'm one of the, the pastors here, and I get the pleasure every few weeks um, of addressing you from up here, of getting to preach the Word of God. Uh, we, we've been going through a series for Advent, really focusing on just one verse, uh, Luke 2, verse 11, which Hope, uh, she left, but <laughs> where, where Hope was just reading. Let's read it really quick, and, and we'll recap a little bit of where we've been. It says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Um, Alex started us off by looking at the significance and just how noteworthy it was that Jesus, this little baby, would be born in Bethlehem and how much Old Testament scripture and story and tradition and understanding pointed to him coming at Bethlehem and how significant that was. And then we looked at Jesus, this, this small baby, being our savior, being the Christ, which we covered last week, that this would be the Messiah coming in this, this weak position of being a child born in a manger. And, and Luke is trying to get this idea across to us that if you look at the insignificance of a child, if you were to look at this birth event like that, you would miss so much. So he points to the city of David. He points to his, his activity as savior, his role as Messiah, that he is the Christ. And then the last thing he titles him is that he's Lord. For all of the appearance of weakness that he might have a baby in swaddling cloth, he is the authority of the world. And Luke wanted to get that idea across. I think, I think to our modern ear, Lord comes across as, as almost routine. He's, he's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't think of that as anything more than Jesus' whole name. <laughs> that just spread out. He's not just Jesus. He's Jesus Christ. Or he's the Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't really give thought to what, what was behind that. When Luke, this incredibly intentional writer, he's a doctor. He's well-educated. He's trying to get this point across to us. What does he want to say by Lord? Alex pointed out, I think two weeks ago, might have been three weeks ago, that there was this, this common practice 
in, in the writing of the New Testament that they would pick up terms that were commonly known. So a term like gospel, which, which already held understanding and weight in the culture, they would pick up a term like that and they would say, yeah, but this is a better fulfillment of that term. In Greek culture and in Jewish culture, Lord was already commonly used. It's right around the time that Luke is writing that the Caesars, the, the emperors of Rome, first started using the language of deification. They didn't actually do it before this time. But it was right around when Christ was alive, and so this becomes common knowledge that the Caesar is the son of God. That, that there's authority that comes with it, and the term that they come with to, to, to better emphasize that idea is Lord. It's Lord. The Jews, uh, when Moses is given the name of, of God, he's, he's trying to explain what's just happened at the burning bush, and he's like, hey, uh, what, what do I tell people to call you? And he says, Tell them to call me the I will be. The I will be. And he goes, uh, move it out of future tense and move it into present tense. Uh, call me the I am. The I am. And that's where we get Yahweh, right? In the Hebrew. But the Jews, the Israelites, in, in reverence to the proper name of God, they go, we got to we got to come up with something that would better encapsulate that. And they run into the same issue when they're trying to translate the Hebrew texts into the Greek. And they're going, so it's the Septuagint, right? The, the Greek rendering of the Old Testament. And they're going, what would we replace the proper name of God with? And so the Hebrew word for it is Adonai, Lord. And the Greek term is Kyrios, Lord. And they go, yeah, that's it. How do we get our heads around who God is? Lord. He's Lord. That's the title that'll work for us. It's a better fulfillment of this. And again, they're, they're trying to pick up on language that's being used elsewhere. Uh, if we were to do it in the United States right now, we would take something like the leader of the free world, because Jesus, you know, he sets the captives free. Leader of the free world? I mean, Joe Biden's, uh, think what you will. But Jesus is such a better fulfillment of leader of the free world than Joe Biden or Donald Trump or anybody else that's come along. It's such a better use of that term. So that's what they'll pick up for him. That's what they'll pick up. Real quick, an idea of where we're going today. It's good to have an outline so you know, like, what is this guy yammering on about? Uh, Luke drives this idea of lordship throughout his gospel, I think arguably more than any of the other gospel writers. He's driving at this idea. So we're going to pick up a few ideas from Luke. And when we're, when we're done with that, I want to look at the modern response to Jesus, both outside the church and inside the church, because obviously both are quite relevant to us being here in Seattle. And, you know, you're inside the church, so that's always going to be relevant. But four quick points from Luke's gospels uh, to kick us off. Jesus is Lord over nature. Jesus is Lord over demons. Jesus is Lord over physical conditions, disease, life, and death. That was a long one. And lastly, Jesus is Lord over sin. And I will grant that this is highly reductionistic, <laughs> that in 22 minutes or so, 
there, there's a limit to how much we can get into, but that'll give us some idea of what is meant by Jesus having authority in all of these different areas. So kick the first one off. If you, if you have your Bibles, you can, you can flip to it if you want. Uh, Luke 8 is where we're going to start off. Uh, it's verse 22, and if, if you don't have it, I'll read it to you. I'll be helpful that way. So Luke 8, verse 22. And I want you to think, as you're hearing this, where is Jesus in authority in this situation? So it says this, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. This is the Sea of Galilee. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this, that he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him? Um, we could break this down further, but I, I wanna focus on the authority side of this. Jesus is joining his disciples. He's, they're going across the water. You have a, a seafaring people. These guys knew what they were doing on a boat. They are crossing and they end up in this massive storm. And the Sea of Galilee is known for this. Mount Hermon, which is about 30 miles uh, up off of the Sea of Galilee to the north, if I remember right, um, brings a lot of cold air down onto the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level very low. And so you get a lot of warmth coming off of this. And when you get cold air, I'm not a meteorologist, I'm a graphic designer by trade. But, but smarter people than me have told me that when cold air collides with warm air, it, it creates a mess. And so over the Sea of Galilee, you constantly have these storms, massive storms. But this one's overwhelming them. It's water coming into the boat. Uh, this is not a good sign. And these guys can't swim. And remember, to, to people of this day that can't swim, uh, water is chaos. This is the worst thing that could be happening to them. And what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping on the boat. He's sleeping. I'm like, Master, Master, get up. Get up and do something about this. And he commands the, the winds to go down and the waves to go down. And just in case you're thinking, well, this could have been coincidence. I mean, a storm, a storm has got to stop at some point, right? Like every storm has an end, like a good book. What would happen is these storms, when they would end, the waves would go on for hours and hours, lapping against the sides of the lake. It just it continued going and going and going and going. And yet the text tells us that the water was in, in the Greek a galene. And Mark goes further, he calls it a mega galene, which even if you don't know your Greek, you know that's bigger and better. It's even more calm. Galene is a glass-like stillness of the water. And if you guys know, I love, I love canoeing. That is my hobby. When I get a chance, I love getting out on the water. And there's nothing better than a morning with the fog down and just complete glass and your, your canoe is just cutting the water. It's beautiful, it's beautiful, it's galene, it's galene. 
but this is a mega galien. It is so still, so calm, that this is not a coincidence. This is not a coincidence. These guys had seen storms end before. This is not a coincidence. This is the authority of God. He calmed the wind. He stilled the water. And they're going, their response, look at them. They were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and water and they obey him? What else did Jesus do? He walked on the stuff. He walked on water. He turns water into wine. Personal favorite as a brewer. He feeds thousands of people off of two loaves and a couple fish. Right? Sorry, two fish and five loaves. Let's get that right. He curses a fig tree, and when they come back to it, it's withered and died because he commanded it to be so. Whoa. Whoa. I don't know how many of you have tried gardening. I can't get it to grow up, let alone to command that it would, <laughs> command that something would happen from it because it didn't grow fruit. That's incredible. And, and the disciples were similarly blown away at, at that exchange. Jesus is Lord over nature. Jesus is Lord over nature. Luke is going to keep going. Uh, verse 26, he picks it up in, in, in Luke 8 again. And you can, you can come back and read it. This is a longer section and, you know, I've got time limits here. But go back and read it because what the next thing we see out of Luke is that, that Jesus is Lord over the demonic. Jesus is Lord over demons. They get to the other side of this lake. And one of the first things that they are encountered with, it says immediately he was encountered with this man. He's naked. And he is clearly possessed by demons. And he has shackles hanging off from him. And he is beat up. And he's living among the tombs. Which is to say that culturally, for this man, he's not just homeless. He's subhuman at this point. He can't live within... He can't live within the city. He's shamed and he's in the nude. He is completely tormented by these demons. And Jesus comes up to them and the first things that are uttered out of him are the demons speaking. And what do they say? They say, don't do anything to us. So the demons immediately recognize the authority of Christ. They're negotiating with him. They know that he's going to do something here, but they're negotiating with him. Is there any chance, there's that herd of pigs over there, any, any chance we could go into something unclean like that? Uh, that would work for us. And, and Jesus, Jesus is able to command them. And, and when, when he asks them for their name, they respond, legion. And if you understand anything about the military, a, a legion, at least a Roman legion, is 5,600 soldiers. 5,600. Now, the text doesn't give us enough to know that that's what they meant. But I, I do think that what the demons are communicating is that it's not just one. It is not just a dozen. This man is utterly tormented by the amount of demons that have overtaken his body and made him subhuman. But Jesus is Lord over the demons, as they well know. And these people are watching Jesus go to work, 
They're watching him go to work. And what happens? The once naked, shackled, shouting man who's overwhelmed by demons, living among the tombs, now because of Jesus' lordship, because of what Jesus is able to do, Luke tells us that he's now clothed. He's seated at the feet of Christ. It's a, position, it's a posture of learning, of being taught. He's, he's become an apprentice of Jesus here. He's of right mind. And Jesus tell, he tells him, return home. Go home. Jesus has restored his humanity with his authority. That's incredible. That's incredible. And the fact that the demons knew it from the start, this is just one episode. I mean, read the Gospels. It's all over the place, right? They knew it right away that Jesus had authority over them. Third point, Jesus is Lord over physical conditions, disease, life, and death. The gospel accounts, and we don't just gotta stick to Luke here, the gospel accounts give us countless uh, episodes where we see Jesus at work in these ways. I, I wrote a few of them down, and it's hard to tell always which ones are overlapping. Um, you know, Jesus restoring the sight to the blind, for example. Um, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that Jesus heals people with leprosy. All four Gospels mention the healing of the paralyzed. Uh, Jesus manages to raise three people from the dead. If that does not tell you something of the authority of God, of Jesus, of this man, this baby, raises three people from the dead. He gets Jairus' daughter, if I get them all, the young man from Nain, and of course, Lazarus, right, in John 11, that he's able to raise from the dead. Incredible. Jesus is Lord over all of this. And the Gospels repeatedly come and drill this idea in that Jesus is not just the Christ. He's not just the Savior. He's completely authoritative. He's Lord. He is Lord. Picking up on the paralytic, I'll go to my fourth point. Jesus is Lord over sin. Go back to the story of the paralytic. If you, if you have your Bibles open, go a few chapters back, flip a couple pages. Luke 5, 17. And, and in that exchange, this is when, uh, you, guys, you guys have heard this one. If you went to Sunday school, I'm sure this came up. You know, because it preaches, right? I mean, the guy's going through the roof. That's super exciting, even if you're six. Um, so this one gets played, right? But pick it up in verse 20. His friends lower him through the roof. They're trying to get him in front of Jesus. And verse 20 says this. He says, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And this, I mean, what a, what a response to a paralyzed dude. This dude can't walk. His friends just lowered him in. And you lead off with, Your sins are forgiven you. Yeah, okay. And, and of course, this, verse 21, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Because who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus perceived their thoughts and he answered them, why do you question in your own hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has what? Has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Of all the ways that Jesus is demonstrating his lordship, and again, I think this is highly reductionistic, 
we have to fit all of this in. But this is highly reductionistic. But just to get a quick glance at it all, of all the ways that he shows us, this is the one that's going to get him killed. The major charge of Jesus before the Sanhedrin, before he is crucified, they, they change it up for the Roman government. When it goes to the Roman government and it's Pilate and he's standing in front of them, the accusation is that he's the king of the Jews. Because they've got to hit the king piece because you need a treason charge if you're going to crucify him. The Sanhedrin did not have the authority, uh, the, the right of the sword, as it were, for, for the Romans. The, the Jewish, they're an occupied government, so they don't have that. But they go with the treason bit in front of Pilate. But in front of the Sanhedrin, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, what do they go with? The accusation is that he's blasphemed himself, that that is why he deserves death. This is the one that's going to get him. This is the one that's going to get him. The fact that he thinks he can come here with the authority to forgive sins, because only God could do that. And they can't get it, they cannot merge this. They cannot reconcile this idea that this little baby that came out of Bethlehem in the city of David of all places would somehow be the Lord God of the universe. That he would have the authority over nature, over demons, over death and life and physical conditions and all of these things and have the authority to forgive sins, he must be God himself for that to be true. And for that, they killed him. That is absolutely why they went after him. They could have given him a hard time in the temple all day long, but it is for the blasphemy that they go after him. But Jesus has no problem with that. He has no problem with asserting his lordship his authority to do these things. Because Jesus is God, and therefore Jesus is an authority over sin. Okay, so that's, that's a rough cursor uh, on, on what Luke has to say about all of this. And that's great. Luke did, did a pretty good job. Pretty good job of threading lordship there. But what does Seattle have to say about Jesus? I, I think, um, I think sometimes Seattle gets a bad rap, or we just assume that they don't have a very positive view of Jesus. And I think if you actually talk to people uh, who don't uh, believe in Jesus as Lord or anything like that, um, you would be surprised by how positive the image actually is. Uh, they kind of have a Mr. Rogers run on him. Like, this is a good dude. Like, Jesus would be one heck of a good neighbor. Uh, he's really wise. I mean, this guy could teach, uh, lots of good things going on. They put him in a similar category, you know, the Mr. Rogers, the Mother Teresa, maybe Gandhi, because, you know, it's Seattle, so why not? Um, they, could, they could put it on, in all of these things. And, and if they accept this historicity, they're, they're generally good with that. The disconnect is Jesus' lordship. That is the disconnect. Because this is Seattle, and I will, I will say this, I'm talking about the city, but I want to recognize that we, we are fish and water here too. And we, we somewhat pull these ideas back into ourselves, right? So what the city does, often we assimilate with that. And so there are things that are true outside this room that are very true inside this room. And I get to do pastoral care with some of you, and so I know that that's true. <laughs> I know that that's true. 
But this is a lordship question, right? And that becomes the disconnect. I love Jesus, but when I have to fall in line with his authority, that becomes an issue for me. That becomes very difficult. The general position of most modern people is that something is true if it works for me, if it is compatible with what I think. And, and it's interesting because the last, uh, you know, what, 2016 election and on, we've really seen that kind of play out more so, maybe in a more overt way. If this works for me, it's true. What do you think about COVID? Uh, depends which science agrees with what I think. And I think that's true on both sides, right? I don't want to see this over here that doesn't line up with my narrative, therefore, eject it. Oh, this says what I want? This New York Times article agrees with me? Fox News actually agrees with me for once? Well, that's a good, that's a good Fox News article, right? I'll take that. And we, we do this. We, we look at truth this way. We, we, we try things on and we see whether or not it works with what we think. But, but who is the authority in that case then? Who defines truth? If truth is fully relative, and if your lordship, if your authority in your life is fully relative to what works for you, to what you're willing to accept in, then who is the authority in the first place? You, you are. You're the authority. You are your own God. You are your own God. You determine truth. You determine when God is okay with you. What's the saying? God made us in his image and we return the favor. Right? Right? We are our own authority. We're our own authority. I think we have this streak in us that, especially as Americans, that bends towards this independence, that, that really likes this, that we set our own standards, we rule ourselves, we operate under this idea that we are our own Lord. But folks, it's delusional at best. It's delusional at best. We were figuring out when we were looking at the liturgy this week, we, we like to read scripture in the beginning of our liturgy because it is helpful, I think, just to settle ourselves. Everybody's rushing into church and figuring out where they're going to sit, you know, all of these things. You get into conversations and now, oh yeah, we're worshiping God together. And it's good to pause and have scripture read over us. And I asked Alex this week, I said, I think you should read Philippians 2. Because what does that say at the end, right? What, how does that close out? I don't actually have it in front of me. I'll do my best. Uh, in the end, every knee shall bow and shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's an authority statement. That in the end, at the judgment, at your judgment, there's no more relative truth. There's no more fake news. There's no more choosing which articles work and which ones don't for you. No, you are not Lord. You, you're done. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There's no negotiation. That sounds harsh, though. And I think if we left it there, uh, we would be biblically honest and we would be just fine. And Alex would not rebuke me tomorrow morning uh, as my boss. <laughs> he could leave it there. But I think it misses something. 
um, I think the most loving thing, one of the most loving things about Jesus is his lordship. One of the most loving things about Jesus is his lordship. Jesus came and lived a perfect sinless life and he died on the cross for your behalf. And legally, before God, he has taken the penalty for your sin, right? You've heard this before. It's a legal transaction. It's, it's like he, he, is, he is attorney and judge. He's our, our advocate and judge. And he takes the penalty for whatever we're guilty for upon himself at the cross. That's awesome. We, we all know that. But I think sometimes it, modern Christians neglect the idea that the gospel is supposed to be transformational. You, you didn't merely take care of your legal problem before God, and then he goes, you know, if you want to go home now, you might as well. It's a real rough place to live. Uh, you know, kids getting cancer, people dying, people getting disease, pandemics, all this stuff. So now that your legal problem is handled, we can, you know, pluck you up and put you into paradise, right? That's not what he does. He has us go through sanctification, through this experience of growing and knowing and better understanding him. In other words, the gospel is not intended just to be transactional, but it's intended to be transformational. You're to be grown in this. You are to, you're to learn and see just how much God loves you. And you're able to, for the first time, start living into your design you were, you were built for a purpose. You were designed to live a certain way in alignment with God. And for the first time, you get to get an image of what it is to be wholly human. You, you get an image of, of, of what it is to, to, to live into that design in that way. Something is the Lord of your life already. You aren't giving up your independence. You have already given that up whether it's the satisfaction of someone else, whether it's money, whether it's anything else that you put in that position, whether it's personal affirmation, that's probably it for me if I'm being honest, right? But, but sanctification is the practice of putting aside those other lords and putting Jesus in his proper position in your life. That is the invitation to you. There's nothing more loving than allowing you to run the way you were designed. And of course, in heaven, that's what it will be. It'll look a lot like this, but without all the sin bit, and with perfect allegiance, perfect communion with God. Jesus isn't destroying you. He's the only thing that can rule your life that won't enslave you, but will give you freedom, but will give you freedom. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And so we become students of his way of living, apprentices, disciples, of his way of living for our own good. Jesus loves you, church. He loves you so much. It is so good that he is Lord. And, and not only is he, is he Lord, but his Lordship is an invitation for you. He's using his Lordship for your benefit to bring you in and invite you in.